one of the challenges I think we have to address is how can we make the learning opportunities and how can we bring learning and working together so the contexts are as close as possible rather than simply providing content and hoping that magic happens because magic usually doesn't happen. Charles Jennings is a leading thinker in innovative learning and performance approaches. We had some interesting discussions in this episode that covered the impact of AI, how reskilling requires a new and different approach, and how L&D teams need to pivot their focus as the future of work and tech evolves. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to the Human Works Podcast and this is your host Anish Lalchandani. The future of work is uniquely human. On this show, I take you on a journey to explore different perspectives to learn, grow and thrive. I'm pleased to welcome Charles Jennings to the Human Works Podcast. Welcome to the show, Charles. Thank you very much for the invitation to have a conversation, Anish. And Charles, can you share with our listeners your career journeys? I know you for, for a number of years. I've been following your work, reading a lot about it, uh, but it will be helpful for our listeners who don't know you. So if you can share an uh, overview of your career. Well, I've worked in, in learning, in technology-supported learning, and particularly in performance improvement for more than 40 years now. Uh, before that, I was a scientist and I was a teacher. Uh, but my roles in this area have been, first of all, I spent a, quite a while researching into collaborative learning, computer computer supported collaborative learning. I was a business professor in a business school. I ran the UK National Centre for Network Based Learning back in the 1980s and into the 1990s. Uh, and I've also in the commercial world, I've held roles as strategic technology director for Dow Jones, the global company and also Chief Learning Officer at Reuters, another global company. And uh, over the last 15 years or so, I've been focused on doing advisory work, and I established the 702010 Institute, which is focused on this 702010 model and helping organizations there. So I think, Anish, in, in answer to your question, my career journey has been, it's been one of, of focusing on how to help people do their jobs better and how to help organizations uh, address and respond to the continual change and the increasing change that uh, you know we all face. I think many of us are familiar with 70-2010, so we will come to that and get your points of view. But it's interesting to see your career journey from being a scientist to a teacher to then going into corporate and advisory. I think it's an advantage having sat on different fences, really, in terms of having been an academic, having been a researcher, Having, having worked in corporate world, I've got sort of different perspectives, you get different perspectives from those different roles. And, and in a way, I consider that a privilege and advantage to, to have to having done that. Maybe on that topic, it would be interesting to know your take on different experiences. There's so much talk about skills. Yeah. So what would be your take around entire piece on skills and how that is unfolding? Well, I think that's a really the whole area of skills is a really, really important area. And I think just to the to the point of having me having worked both in in academic life and also in business life, I often worry a little bit about the fact that many leaders and HR directors and, and business leaders don't separate learning from schooling. So when we think about needing to reskill or upskill people, 
the the knee jerk, the instant response is, well, we need to design a learning pathway and a, a series of training programs or whatever, some sort of schooling model, rather than thinking about learning in its wider sense. But to your point about my my take on on skills, skills are undoubtedly really important in the world. You know, globally, we have a challenge with with reskilling and upskilling, particularly with the levels of innovation and continuous improvement that are, we're going to need in the future. Uh, and certainly all the all the evidence points that we're moving into a period of very rapid change, although we've been in it, certainly all my career, we've been in a period of rapid change, but I think it's that change is increasing. And uh, innovation is, is, you know, we really need innovation to do things differently and develop different ways of doing things. But for me, employees, employee skills is just one input into organizational uh, performance and actually isn't the major input. So I think it's worthwhile thinking about skills in terms of what they input to not just individuals to develop individuals, but how they help develop organizations. And if we look back at the research, people like W. Edwards Deming, who's famous for his work in terms of agile, developing agile and lean and so on. And, and Deming was significant in, in his role in the recovery of J Japan after the Second World War. Uh, Deming always looked, but every 10 years, Deming looked back on his career and asked himself some questions. And when he retired, when he is, came to the end of his career, he looked back and he said he determined that about 94% of the major organizational challenges or opportunities that he saw, 94% were due to the system. And in the system, he included management, processes, clarity of purpose, all those sorts of things. And about 6% was due to what he calls special. In other words, the people, the performer. So Deming found that, you know, or his reflections were that most of the challenges and opportunities were around making sure our systems work better, our leadership was better, our management processes were better, and so on. And along with, with Deming, uh, a man called Geary Rumler and, and, well, with his colleague Alan Brash, who focused on human performance improvement, they found that 90% of performance gaps are caused by organisational barriers, not by knowledge deficits. And, and Rumler famously said, pit a good performer against a bad system and the system will win most every time. And I'm sure we all relate to that. You know, people want to do the best, the best they can. They're trying to do things really well, but sometimes the system just gets in the way and sort of solves us. And actually it doesn't matter how good your skilled work for, how skilled your workforce is. If your system, if your organization is working against those skills, you know, you have a, a major problem. So the working environment actually is more important than just certifying skills. However, skills are important because you, they're the sort of bedrock, I see one of the bedrock of the human performance part. And in order to, to make sure that those skills are really implemented, those skills can be exploited both by the individuals who have them and by the organizations, I think we need to think about how our organizations address the issue of psychological safety. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, the environment in which we're working is critical. How do we make sure that that environment is psychologically safe so I can say I don't know something when I don't know something? I can ask questions. I can challenge the status quo. Uh, I can admit my mistakes without feeling I'm going to be, you know, it's going to be punishing on my career. And so, 
And I mean, ultimately, that comes down to managers and leadership. And yeah. I quite like the I quite like the definition of culture, uh, of the culture of an organisation being the worst behaviours that leadership will allow, combined with the best behaviours that leadership just demonstrate. So I think that when you think about skills or when we talk about skills, I don't see how we can separate that from leadership, from the culture of the organization, from the environment that people are working in. So I think there's a whole other issue around formal education or formal training leading to competence, but real expertise coming from other ways through experience and practice and conversations and, and other things. So there's a bit of a gap between what, when we refer to competence and expertise, I've never seen, I've never seen someone come out from a, say a, a formal development program or a formal training course who consider themselves to be experts. You know, hopefully yeah. good, good training produces competence, but expertise is produced by a whole range of other things, part of which is experience with having to address those challenging that challenging work and things like that. So I think there's a whole very interesting area and a whole discussion around skills. And as I was saying, uh, skills are no doubt important, but it sometimes worry me that we get so obsessed just with skills in isolation that actually that's not going to solve the problems. We have to look at developing skills in the environment and we have to think about the context, the context of what we're trying to do. Uh, so skills are important, but maybe not as important as some HR and some L&D people really think they are. What resonates with me is around the piece what you talk about is around environmental factors, because many people have skills or they get skilled or get competence through some of the programs, but then is everyone successful? Does everyone has the support system, the leaders, the environment? And the most important part is around the psychological safety. Are we as an organization giving them a platform to fail fast, get feedback, learn from it and apply back again? And that's something where I would think and you start to look at not only learning content or reading content and mostly focusing on knowledge, but how do you start applying those skills and getting feedback and that loop essentially also helps people to then start really upskilling themselves. I would absolutely agree, Anish. I think that psychological safety is the absolute bedrock of continuous improvement and development and performance in organizations. And in fact, I reviewed a learning strategy for a larger global organization just in the last 18 months. And I was really surprised that learning strategy, the term or the concept of, of psychological safety was only mentioned once. It was one minor mention. So I can't see how you could develop a learning or a people strategy without having psychological safety at the, at the base of, of what you're doing because it doesn't matter how sophisticated you develop your skills development programs and, and so on. If, unless you, unless those, those skills are going into a psychologically safe environment, they're going to be, they're going to be wasted without a doubt. I totally agree with that. And maybe the other kind of aspect to pivot from here is we also see a lot of like investments, which are going into say learning technology platforms, MSs. Now we hear about. Uh, LXPs, uh, you know, content libraries, and then so much of investment from even from VCs going on in this space. What are you seeing for, from your perspective? Why are we still not able to make uh, make use of these investments and make effective use of the learning investments which are coming through? 
Yes, the technology is a really critical piece. And actually to add to LMSs and LXPs and so on, of course, we've got all the AI and the large language models and everything which are rushing yeah. at us at, at, at pace. I, I think in terms of making learning more effective, there's no doubt that technology can help a lot. But I go back to the work by uh, Evanson Verster from Boston Consulting Group back nearly 20 years ago now, over 20 years ago now. And you may may have read the book they wrote called Blown to Bits, which was how the technology of the internet was going to change everything and break this, what Evans and Verster called this richness and reach trade-off. Now, I think technology has done that. We, You and I can have this conversation and we're, we're sitting on different continents. So the richness reach, we can have a, we can have a deep, deep conversation without having to be in one room. So there's no doubt that technology can really help a lot. But one of the challenges I think we have is to change our models in terms of how we use that technology. I think simply overlaying technologies, and certainly in my career, the early LMSs, for example, were simply training administration systems, uh, or as some people referred to them as, as course vending machines. You know, so in other words, we took the model of bringing people out of the workplace, putting them through a course and putting them back in the workplace. And we overlaid the technology in terms of content centric or yes, yeah, content, he content heavy systems, which are focused on pushing content or putting people through a process. And for me, that's not the best use of the technology. I think if we use the technology to help people enhance the work they do, help them upskill, reskill, deal with difficult and challenging work that they're doing if we can do that's the best use of learning tech and i think that's where it'll make it more effective and i go back to another bit of research and i guess it might be my age but i often find that i look back into history and there's some some blind spots that we've had in terms of learning and development i often refer back to some work that was published in 1901 so we're now sitting in 2023 so we're talking about 122 years ago by a couple of people called Robert Woodworth and Ed, Edward Thorndike. And they were very eminent psychologists. In fact, Thorndike was the, uh, the chairman of the uh, American Psychological Association, or Society, I think it was called at that time. Uh, and not a very pleasant man, actually, but uh, he was a, a good thinker. Uh, and and Thorndike, uh, Woodworth and Thorndike uh, came up with this, what they call the principles of identical elements. And the principle of identical elements, in summary, was that the more elements in the environment where you learn something new, the more elements in that environment are to the environment where you're going to use that learning. In other words, the closer the two environments are together, the more effective that learning is going to be. And in fact, uh, Woodworth and Thorndike subtitled their research, their initial research as the transfer of practice. In other words, how do you transfer practice from a learning environment to a working environment? And of course, the answer to that is it's learning is all about context. So if we learn something in the context where we're going to use it, there's very strong evidence to show that learning will be more effective. So technology can really help us do that. And I think, I th and I'm already seeing, and in fact, my colleagues in the 702010 Institute are working on projects now, producing mobile-based, AI-based support systems to help people do their jobs so that you've got basically performance support in your hand as you're working and therefore the more you apply the principles and you work in a particular way and the outcomes are better the more you'll do it and so on so you get this continuous improvement so i think it's i think for me the technology really helps us 
not just add learning into the work, but it helps us with our embedded learning in work and helps us extract learning from work. So it helps in, in those ways. And as I say, I think AI has huge potential in the performance support area. And one thing I shall be certainly interested to see how it unfolds in the next two or three years. I hope that the learning and development talent HR profession pick up these opportunities of embedding these new technologies in performance support and don't just use them to produce sort of more content-led, content-heavy courses. Because I think, again, that would be back into the thinking about schooling rather than thinking about learning and how we our learning links into performance. What I'm hearing from you, it's so helpful, but what we usually see is content heavy kind of stuff coming in from LMSs and how can we actually pivot that to start looking at how can technology provide the performance support? How can actually it help individuals to learn in a different way? And I think I mean, some of the examples are also around talent marketplace. AI can help connect people with the opportunities. It shows them the way to apply those skills and experiences so that we can start to learn in a different manner. I think everyone's just getting used to the new AI, like ChatGPT and so on. But one thing that I, I've held, and I, I'm pleased that I sort of became aware of very early on in my career, is that for learning, context is absolutely critical. Yeah. Uh, context is far more critical than content. And one of the challenges I think we have to address is how can we make the learning opportunities and how can we bring learning and working together so the contexts are as close as possible rather than simply providing content and hoping that magic happens because magic usually doesn't happen. Uh, so, yeah, so I think that's really important. That was a good lesson for me early on in my career. Yeah, that's a good one. Context and content. Yeah, because with Internet, with all the technology, I think access to content has become easier which used to be a challenge. I would say, yes, people still needed some information and content, but that's now, if you ask me, table stakes. You can curate that in different ways, make it easier, but it's still someone, if you skew, they are curious, then they'll still find it out. It's all about the context and then how do you connect that for them to really start apply some of their learnings in a specific, solving a specific business problem. We talked about upskilling and reskilling a couple of times. Uh, now, I think as the world is evolving with AI, uh, business models are getting disrupted. If we had a data entry operator, that job is possibly no longer there because a lot of that process are getting automated or getting straight through. And that requires organizations to start focusing on upskilling and reskilling specifically. Now. In one aspect, we also talk about learning in the flow of work. And when it comes to reskilling, where someone needs to move from a A career track to a B job career track, etc., how do you see this coming together? Upskilling, I think, is easy. It's in the flow of work. But when it comes to reskilling, do you see organizations have to take a different approach compared to basic upskilling approaches? Yeah, and I really I agree with you. I think there are two different, or there are. Yes, two different challenges there. The the upskilling is where we're getting better at doing the work we already do. So we're progressing through the levels, I guess, if you think of it in organizational terms, through the levels of, of expertise until we become highly expert in terms of, of what we do. But where we need to, to reskill, in other words, change, uh, and change is difficult. I mean, we always know that, you know, we've always known that change is really difficult and organizations don't do change generally very well. I mean, when you look at the number of big change programs that fail. So I think there's 
a key role for learning in the flow of work here. And I think uh, we've seen it a little bit over the years in things like job shadowing. We've seen it in terms of people on different assignments uh, where people get a flavor in terms of what is this, what's involved in this role about which I know nothing or knew nothing before I spent some time working in it. And, and then sort of looking at how I match to that and what attributes I have. And, and I, I sort of look at it in this way. I think that rather than thinking about just reskilling people, so rather than just thinking about reskilling people for new jobs and thinking of it as being a new a greenfield site, so to speak, I think it's around working out where people's passion is, where their interests are. And you mentioned curiosity. I think that's really critical in terms of the of people being curious and, and wanting to expand and wanting to become not necessarily specialists in one area, but become sort of more broadly based and move into other areas. Again, I see a really key role in workplace learning for that. And I've always worked with this model around, with, if you think about three boxes, the concepts, context, and tasks. So if I want to, if I want to reskill, the first thing I need to know is what is this new role I would move into? Or what is this new area I'd move in? What are the concepts of it? What are the fundamentals that I would need to move from working in, in role or area A to area B? And helping people prepare for those new concepts, actually some sort of structured formal help is really probably the best way. So people often say to me, Charles Jennings, you're, you're sort of anti-formal learning. Absolutely not. I'm not. But I think in terms of learning the concepts, if you step into something new, whether it's a new role or a new area or a new business or whatever, a new job, it's really helpful to understand the key concepts around what's this all about? What am I trying to do? What are the outputs? Uh, all those sorts of things. That's best supported through some sort of formal process. And I think formal learning, learning pathways and so on really help to do that. Then once you st step into a little bit higher up or a bit more, to use another metaphor, a bit more deeper into the water in in terms of the context, that's when learning in the flow of work becomes useful, because then I can sort of understand what is it that high performers do here? What do exemplary performers do that's different to ordinary performers? And we know from research, in fact, some research from the University of Indiana showed that uh, in terms of experts are really important in organizations because the top 5% of the performers deliver about 26% of the of the output from organizations. And, and the research was more than half a million people involved in those studies and it showed it didn't really matter what uh what type of work it was what industries industry sectors and so on it was always about that so if we're going to move people into this expertise move them from reskill them and get them into sort of the the high performing side we need to think about the context and to do that the last box is really around tasks so it's about helping and support people to people to carry out the work the tasks and particularly the critical tasks, because when you look at almost any role and you talk to high performers in those roles, you can identify maybe five or 10 critical tasks that they undertake in particular ways in order to deliver what they deliver and what they do is successful. So I think that when we think about reskilling for new roles, for maybe a new career or a new, a new work track or whatever, uh, I think you have to look across the board and say, what are the new concepts I need to, a new environment I need to work in, and conceptual framework I'm working in? 
what is the context of the work I need to do and what are the tasks I need to carry out. And when you look at how you do that, I would say, actually, this is where 70, 20, 10 is very useful. That first bit, the concepts, really good. Let's use the 10. Let's make sure we've got really good, some good structure to get people started. Then when we move into the context and tasks, we move into the learning from others, learning with others, learning through working and all those other pieces in there. Yeah, yeah. So I think we, we, we talked about the concept, context and task uh, in a way, looking at how do we really upskill people? Yeah. But, uh, you know, what would be the other factors you would add on to this and just giving like a, you know, reference around World Economic Forum, you know, they call it that we need to upskill 1 billion people. Yeah, and I think this was, again, I would say baby steps, they're kind of putting a number there, but highlighting the gravity of the challenge with, with so much change going on. Yeah, so I think the, the, the way we're looking at upskilling, I think that's useful, but would there be any other advice uh, or suggestions you would give for for HR leaders to how do they tackle this challenge in their organizations? Well, I could be quite challenging here and say my advice to HR leaders would be to forget about what they've done in the past and then adopt new approaches which will work, such as, and we've talked about this already, Anish, about building psychologically safe environments which encourage continuous improvement not one-off training and learning pathways and so on, which, which really work. So it's a ma matter of sort of moving the focus to that. It's, it's around embedding, making sure we're creating environments where we're embedding learning in everyday work. For example, I mean, I've done quite a bit of work with, with uh, elite sports people. Now, in elite sports, there's this whole concept of match fitness and this whole concept of reflection. You know, no, no elite sports person would think that they'd come off the pitch or the field or whatever their, their sporting arena and not spend some time thinking about what went well, what could we do better, what have we learned from that? Just going through that standard uh, process of reflection and reflective practice. So I think that's really critical where we can sort of embed learning in everyday work by simple by the simple means of saying, let's take some time just to reflect on why this has worked, why it hasn't, how we could do it better. and. And really encouraging that in team-based, not just individual, but team-based in everyday work. And one of the challenges, in fact, I've written a little bit about it, and I'm currently writing quite a bit more about the fact that with, with HR, HR has tended to focus on the individual as the atomic unit in organizations. Yet when you go to talk to senior leaders and, and managers, their, their atomic unit is not the individual, their atomic unit is the team. Because most of us, the vast majority of us, achieve our objectives through, the through a team. We work with others, we work with multiple teams. And I see this as a bit of a tension, actually, for learning and development uh, professionals, because we often are pulled into individual development, which is important because it helps people on their careers and so on. But we're pulled into that like a vortex, uh, and we leave the idea of, of developing the organization and teams as a whole. And, uh, you know, I, my advice to HR leaders would be to step out of the box of thinking about individual development and think about how we can deliver value for our organizations through team development, through using conversation and reflection and, and practice and all those sorts of things, and make sure we put processes in place to support those. Because without that, 
I think HR and learning and development will never be what I would call a value creator. You you talked in your opening about business models. Yeah. One of the things that my colleague, uh, Jos Aritz, in the 702010 Institute in Tulsa has developed a, a four a, a quadrant model around value for learning and development professionals moving from in the bottom left from being an order taker uh, through being a learning enabler, a performance enabler to the top right to being a value creator. And I think all of us need to contribute value to our organization. So we need to rethink our, our business our business models. And a lot of senior learning and HR people, when I ask them about what the business model they operate to, they haven't really thought about their business models, you know, but in this fast changing world, we need, we need to think about that because our value proposition is going to change. We need to think what we need to do to change, to make what changes we need to make in order to address, you know, to, to address that, that change value proposition. Uh, thank, thanks, Charles, I think, for sharing that. Uh, and something what resonates with me quite a lot is the, the value creation piece, what you talked about. Uh, because uh, you're right, means uh, a leader asks us to say, can you do this uh, training, uh, you know, or, or learning? And is it fine? Yes, let's do it. Or we find a, a, you know, a skills library to kind of, you know, a content library to give them that. Uh, but from there, how can we actually start pivoting towards looking at the performance challenges, the business challenges? and if uh, a customer, you know, as an organization, if, if we have a customer, then how can we actually add value to our customer and clients? Yeah, and enabling our leaders in a way in that process and looking at collectively as a team. Because you're right, it means we do focus quite a lot. If we take a talent lens, which I do quite a lot, we actually focus quite a lot on individuals. We focus on succession plans, uh, successors. Uh, but when when we're really looking at reskilling and upskilling, I think also for us to start thinking is how do we reskill this entire organization or a team? Because it's not only one on one. It means that's something we do expect leaders to actually do at individual level conversations. But then uh, when we're looking at holistically, then how do we start looking at it from a team point of view? I think that becomes quite important as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and absolutely agree with you. And there's a balance. There's a balance to be found. Yeah. Uh, supporting individuals for their own career and so on, as I said earlier, is is important. But I think over the past thirty or forty years, the pendulum has moved too far that way. We need to, if we're going to really respond to changes needed in our organisations, we need to bring the pendulum back to focus on teams and organisations. And the other big change, I feel that HR leaders and and learning and talent leaders need to adopt Anish is moving their mindsets from a learning mindset to a performance mindset and changing mindsets again is quite a, quite a challenge but if we're just focused on learning which is the process rather than performance which is the output we end up going down sort of rabbit holes we tend to get tied up in terms of the detail of the process rather than thinking about what are we trying to, to achieve what are the outputs are we looking at in fact I work with a big organization uh, who's only learning metrics for a big program they had to upskill a group of a group of managers around the world. The only metric they were interested in was what they called time to productivity or time to payback. In other words, how long did it take between recruiting someone into the organization? How long did it take before the cost of recruiting them, of identifying them, recruiting them, onboarding them, training them up? How long did it take? before they started to earn money for the company rather than 
be a cost. In other words, become a value creator rather than a cost. And in fact, at the 702010 Institute, we worked with this organization and we reduced that time down from, in some cases, 18 months down to three months. Wow. So yeah. in terms of in terms of thinking, when we're thinking about value, you can put it into hard sort of money terms such as that. How, how quickly can we get people productive from not from the perspective of their skills and expertise, but from the perspective of the outputs? And, and that is really critical. I mean, that will make HR and learning and development value creators, because if they're working with their stakeholders and their managers and they can demonstrate that they can they can deliver they can help them deliver value for their organizations. Uh, that's what they're trying to do, rather than measuring how many people have been through this training program and and trying to do all that sort of stuff, because that's sort of interesting internally, because you want to be as efficient as possible. But it's not really learning metrics are no, are no substitute for real business metrics. Learning metrics are great to use internally because they help us refine the pro our processes, but actually the metrics that really matter are the business metrics. That's true. And it means a lot of these number of classrooms, number of courses, it's mostly the effort, I would say, which, which, which as HR or LAB professionals, we are putting in. It's not the impact or the business results, if you ask me. So we spoke about 70, 20, 10 number of times. Uh, some of us are familiar with the model. My question to you is around, would the model stay relevant or will it change? We talked about like AI augmenting the work, uh, it, AI supporting teams. AI possibly cutting down on some tasks and maybe AI also making it uh, some ways easier to get content. So there's a lot of influence coming in from that point of view. So what would be your point of view around the model uh, to where it is today and how it may evolve? It's a, it's a really good question and we could have a whole podcast on that, I think, Anish, but let me try and summarize. The 70-2010 framework came out of some work done and carried out in the 1980s. And the world of work in the 1980s was very different to the world of work today. But I think a lot of people misunderstand what 702010 is all about. Uh, I've been working with it for more than 20 years. And for me, 702010 is a framework. And what it does, it helps us extend the ways we support learning beyond formal training. So it says, when you look through a 702010 lens, you're looking at saying, okay, how do people develop? How do people achieve their objectives? And they achieve their objectives through formal development that helps us get become, get our license to operate basically to become competent. Then that's not the end of it. We then think about how can we help develop through working with other people, that's the 20, and through working through tasks and so on, that's the 70. So for me, 70-20-10 framework, it's not a rule. It's not a set ratio. I've had lots of conversations over the years with people saying, do you think it'll change from 70, 20, 10 to 33, 33, 33? The answer is learning on the job and learning through others has always been really important. 70, 20, 10, if you look at it in terms of numbers, you'd say, well, about 90% of learning is down to learning with and through others and learning on the job. I don't think that's changed much. I think that's the nature of the way humans operate. So, and actually, there's been work, the European Centre for Education and the Labour Market, for example, they identified in, in some research that in terms of time spent learning, 96% of time spent learning actually occurs in the daily flow of work and about 4% occurs away from the daily flow of work. And, and actually, that may seem like a big number, 96%. But if you just think about 
the average amount of time that people are devoted to formal training in a year. And the ATD, the Association of Talent Development, publishes in its state of the industry figures every year. And, and they've been pretty pretty consistent over the last 15 years or so. An average company, an average person in an average company spends about 35 hours a year training. Now, it varies in terms of their role and their position in the hierarchy and so on, but it's about 35 hours per year. And companies that are really focused on developing people often spend a bit more, maybe up to 50. And then you look at how many hours a year do people work? Well, I only have the data for OECD. And if you look at OECD, it comes from sort of in the almost 2000, maybe 1700 in the US. In most of Europe, it's around about 15, 14, 13, 14, 1500. So you don't need to be a mathematical genius to say, okay, if we spend 35 hours formally training a year, we uh, we're working for maybe 1500, 1700, 1800 hours. In that working time, again, the Research Center for Education and Labor Market has identified that around about 25% of time that we work, if we're a white collar worker, around about 25% of time we're working uh, really good opportunities for learning. Although even things like team meetings and, and writing reports is an opportunity for learning as well. And blue collar workers, surprisingly for me, it's only a bit less. It's around 20% of working time uh, is an opportunity for learning. So do the maths and you can see that, uh, you know, that, that why that, that big figure of 96% isn't, isn't surprising. So I think that the way I see it is 70-20-10 is not just relevant going forward, you know, as much as it has been in the past, but possibly more so as technology and changing ways of working provide opportunities for working and learning to come much more closely together. And my colleague, Harold, Harold Jarke, has said for years, learning is the work in today's world. We're actually, where we're, work, where we're working now, if we're going to compete, we have to continually develop, continually iterate. It's a whole concept of continuous improvement. And so for me, 702010 is just as important as it was in the past, maybe even more so. And, and also, for me, the main power of 702010 is it helps us step back and think about, about learning in a sort of systemic way and a much more holistic approach. So we say, how do we learn? Well, we don't just school. Schooling is important, as, even as we go through go through life, but actually we learn in all sorts of other ways as well. So let's focus our time, effort and money across all the opportunities rather than put all our time, effort and money into the formal. In fact, my former colleague, Jay Cross, who wrote a wonderful book about informal learning, and Jay died now eight years ago now, but Jay published in one of his books, the figures around the fact that about 80% of the time, effort and money was spent on formal training and about 20% on informal, but actually, the time and the value that comes out is about 80% from informal and so on, and 20% from formal. I would have, I, well, I challenged Jay and I would continue to say that I don't think that 20% in terms of we spend 80% on formal and 20% on informal, I think in most organizations it's even less actually. But, uh, but sure. going forward, going forward with learning and work coming together with the increasing rate of change and the increasing, you know, hybrid working and all these sorts of things, it's going to become even more critical that, that learning is embedded in work and we're aware of that and we leverage that and we find ways in which we can make the best of that. So for me, 70-20-10 is going to be around long after I've gone for sure. 
Wonderful. Well, well said, Charles, on that. We, we're almost coming to the end of the podcast, and I have these couple of questions for you, which are like one word answers. Yeah, can be tricky, but love to get your reaction to those. One word describe the future of work. If I can cheat a little and give you a hyphenated word, I would say ever changing. Ever changing. Okay, that's interesting. And and one skill that will shape the future of work. I, again, I'd like to cheat a little bit, but I would say primarily the one skill is leadership mm -hmm. uh, because organizations are molded and reflect the leadership. And we see it all around the world in all sorts of different organizations. We see it in politics, particularly. I, I see, and I don't, I'm not just speaking from my own country's politics, but I think Politics and psychological safety are at, both, at two ends of an extreme, really. So the leadership that is permitted in politics, for example, because there is no psychological safety, the leadership is generally very poor. But I think in big organizations as well, leadership at all levels, not just senior leadership, but team leaders, managers, even people managing their own work and development and, 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 and so on is really important. So for me, leadership skill. And if I could have a sort of a sub skill under that, mm -hmm. I would say that collaboration skills are really critical because we as humans are social animals. Yeah. The, the, great, the great educational psychologist Jerome Brunner once said that our world is others. In other words, in Brunner's eyes, we, did not, we don't, don't exist without others. And I think that, you know, people uh, perform with and through, generally with and through others. Sometimes we do it ourselves, but but mostly we rely on others for inputs and for reflection and for all sorts of things. So those collaboration skills are really critical. And again, in that box, the psychological safety rears its head again, because if you're going to have really effective conversations, if you're going to have really collaboration, which really results in in positive outputs, you know, you have to put the barriers down and and work in an environment of psychological safety. Otherwise, you'll just keep your mouth shut, keep doing your work, and nothing much will change. True, true. Charles, it has been a pleasure speaking to you. Where can our listeners reach out to you? Anish, the best way really to connect with me is via LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would, I would put a caveat to that saying, please, if you connect to me on LinkedIn, please just add an introduction to your, to your invitation, because otherwise it might get deleted. So so just uh, give me a little bit of context uh, and say, if you've listened to this podcast, just say you listen to this podcast and you'd like to connect and have a conversation or whatever. So that's probably the easiest way. Definitely. I think I'll add the details in the show notes, uh, but it's been lovely speaking to you, Charles. Thank you so much for your time. Anish, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. See you next time.